This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Loop is making engagement ring shopping easier with personal service, expert style advice, customization options, and beautiful inspiration to help you find a ring that fits your style and budget. All Loop rings are hand-set, individually screened by their team of experts, and meet the highest quality standards. Finding her ring is a big decision, so here's $100 off your ring to free up some extra dollars so you can take her somewhere nice and really do up that big proposal in style. Just go to loopjewelry.com slash pages slash kick and use code kick. That's loopjewelry.com slash pages slash kick and offer code kick. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Have you ever felt like you didn't fit in or couldn't catch a break? Your parents roll their eyes, your teachers barely care, your boss hates all your ideas. Do even your kids make you feel like you're silly for wanting to pursue your dreams? Sometimes life convinces you that you're born to strike out, bound to lose. Well, comedian Chris Gethard wants to tell you that they're probably right. Odds are that failure is imminent. But that's great. In fact, according to him, striking out hard and often might just be the key to a healthier, happier, and more successful life that ends with you living free of regret. He believes failure is an art form, and the only way to discover who you are, what's most important to you, and how to live and work on your own terms is to learn how to lose well. Lose Well is not only his mantra, but the title of his new book, and today the host and creator of The Chris Gethard Show and the popular podcast Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People joins me on the show to illustrate his personal and professional manifesto, with hilarious and ultimately empowering tales about his own missteps, misadventures, and public failures. From the cancellation of his Comedy Central sitcom after only 10 episodes, to rediscovering his comedic voice and life's purpose on a public access channel. He recalls how getting miscast in a school production of Bye Bye Birdie changed his life, the time he invited a heckler on stage during one of his comedy sets, and why the host of a rival cable access show tried to sue him for, quote, violating her constitutional rights. He discusses his love of Andy Kaufman, whatever happened to cable access TV, and some of the wonderfully weird things he got away with on The Chris Gethard Show. We talk about President Trump's obsession with defining people as winners and losers, how Chris handles political differences on his show Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, and why Chris's very first manager is still to this day the worst person he's ever met. Coming up with comedian Chris Gethard in just a moment. Chris Gethard is an improv comic and stand-up comedian and the creator of The Chris Gethard Show. His Judd Apatow-produced one-man show Career Suicide premiered on HBO and was nominated for the Lucille Lortel Award for its off-Broadway run. He's also the host of the popular weekly podcast Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People. Now he's written a new book called Lose Well. Chris Gethard, welcome. Thank you for having me. You have a tattoo on you, I heard, that says lose well. Yeah. How did this sort of become a mantra for you? Well, I I had a uh, I had an experience many years ago where I had been uh I'd been fighting, you know, to get my career up and running. And I I was about ten years deep on that and it wasn't going great. And then I got cast on a sitcom and then the sitcom did not do well. And then I wound up hosting a public access show about eight months after the show failed. And I think by anybody's definition, that's not a great career trajectory from lead on a sitcom to public access TV host. <laughs> this was not a gimmick. I did it for four and a half years. Mm -hmm. I committed hard to it. And uh, at one point, one of the cast members of the show had to move from New York where we did the show. And she had expressed uh, to me that she felt like a loser. And I went on this rant where I basically said, I was like, you know what? You can't apologize for that. Like, I'm not going to deny it. We're on public access TV. We're the losers. Like, we lose 
But I will tell you, anybody who loves this show feels like we lose well. We are good at it. <laughs> we are the losers, and we're nailing that. So don't apologize for losing well. And the fan base of my public access show really embraced that, and I think it really kind of summed up some of the ethos of what we were trying to build mm -hmm. with that show. And and a number of people who watch that show have that have the phrase "lose well" tattooed on their body. And um, really, yeah, I do as well. And that's so flattering and mind blowing. And it made me realize that it was something that struck a chord with people, and it it, it made me feel comfortable kind of taking a shot at this book mm -hmm. that tried to sum up every thought I have behind this philosophy. Yeah, and it's an interesting time for you to be promoting this message of lose well because we have a president who treats everything as a zero-sum game and reduces human beings to winners and losers. When the culture is so obsessed with winning, is this message of lose well a tough sell? Uh, it might be. I don't know if it'll affect sales. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll find see. Out. We'll get the numbers in a week yeah. or so. But, <laughs> but I, I do think you're totally right that there's this very black and white definition of success. And I think that yeah. a lot of us from the time we're young feel like we're heading down a path and you either win or you lose. And I will just say that as someone who's pushing 40, I feel like I've been around a little while now. And I, I think that's a real fallacy. I think there's uh, shades of gray. And I think your definitions of success are allowed to change over time. And I mm -hmm. think that... The thing you decide you want to do when you're 15 years old or 20 years old does not have to be the thing you're still pursuing when you're 50 years old or 60 years old. And I think it's a very dangerous mental place to live in that you win, you lose, that's it. I think that yeah. uh, there is certainly something to be said for becoming a well-rounded person, kind of figuring out who you are, where your integrity lies, how to kind of embrace what's in your own guts is to me, winning. I think from the outside that sometimes looks like losing to people, but I think there's a lot of us out there who feel like if if all you can be is a winner or a loser, I think from an early age I felt pigeonholed into being a loser. I think there's a lot of us who feel that way and feel like we're expected to stay in our lane, and I don't like it, and I don't buy it. <laughs> I hope this book makes a lot of those people feel like they can pick up a brick and throw it through a window, if I'm being honest. And a great example of not being pigeonholed as a loser or as whatever it is that you're pigeonholed as um, is this early story that you tell from, I want to say it was in high school, and you have this seminal moment that sort of made you want to go into entertainment and specifically comedy. A high school production of Bye Bye Birdie. Eighth grade. Yeah, it was actually eighth grade. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. And you were you were sort of uh, some would say miscast as the the lead Conrad <laughs> Birdie, who's like the cool Elvis type. Yeah. You were not. That no, I was type, about as far away from respect. that. Oh, please, I'm, <laughs> I'm well able to see that. I was actually originally cast as the little brother Randolph, <laughs> which made a lot more sense because I was a uh, I I. I sort of tragically did not go through puberty until like tail end of my junior year of high school. I was the <laughs> tiny little late bloomer kid and playing the little brother in the coonskin cap fit me just fine. And then, uh, yeah, the guy who was playing Conrad Birdie, which if you, if you don't know the show, Conrad Birdie is just Elvis. It's just right, Elvis exactly. with a different name. He dropped out and I was a little nerd and I had memorized the whole script. So they threw me in there last minute. I had to all of a sudden figure out what it was like to be cool, try to take a stab at being cool. It sort of sums up the rest of my career since. It's a weird mix of success and public failure and shame and joy and all these strange things. Yeah, and you talk about that being a turning point because prior to that you'd spent your young life fearing being laughed at, yeah. and then you get laughed at as kind of this guy miscast in this cool role and, I and it, it. you became addicted to it sort of yeah and it's funny because i knew i was being laughed at i understood it in the moment i mean I, I will never forget the feeling that curtain opened and i think especially a lot of the parents who were there you know it was a lot of kids from school but their parents are there were seventh eighth graders and you gotta bring your parents and i remember hearing the adults laugh and i knew i was like i get it man i get that this doesn't make sense i get why this is funny and it was an extremely empowering moment. It was a moment where mm -hmm. I think I could have chosen to be embarrassed or ashamed, but I just knew that this was uh, something that I was actually very much in control of. And I always liked being a class clown and a funny kid. And it was the first time where it felt like, oh, this is a possibility. This is an mm -hmm. actual thing that feels attainable. And that was... Very addictive, as you said. <laughs> and you later went on to go into improv and into stand-up. 
who were your early inspirations getting into that? Um, it's, you know, very interesting question. Cause one thing that's a sad, but true fact is that like many people uh, who were born in 1980, Bill Cosby was a huge yeah. cultural icon. Yeah. I mean, we all watched his show and then I would go listen to his albums and remember reading some of his books as a kid too. And, uh, it's a sad thing to have to admit, but if you've seen my stand-up, it's very storytelling-based, and I think you can see that that's what I grew up on. Eddie Murphy, another mm-hmm. person that I really obsessed over as a young man. And then, you, again, you watch Eddie Murphy. Um, and he was huge. Huge. In and those I'm days. certainly not equating this to what that Bill Cosby did, but oh, right, if right. you look at his specials, they don't age well in a progressive, yeah. modern sense. And <laughs> I also, as I got a little older, I got into some of the more absurdist stuff, like David Letterman when I discovered mm-hmm. him. and. Andy Kaufman was a big one for me. Yeah. He was a real big one. And, yeah. Uh, talk about it in the book a little bit about how inspiring I found him. You kind of sum him up as what you call funny plus, and you yeah. say that's something to strive for. What is funny plus? To me, it's this thing that I, I sort of put out there in the book, which is that when you set out to do something, and in, in my world, that's this creative thing, comedy, for many years, you're going to feel like you're not even good at it and then at a certain point you'll feel good at it and then at a certain point it will start to feel easy and my challenge to the readers of my book is that when it gets to that point I argue that you want to put something else on top of it you want to put a spin on it that's uniquely yours you don't just Mm want to spend all your time chasing something unlikely so that you can eventually say look I'm as good as other people have done this you want people to look at you and look back and go that person put their own fingerprints on it their own take on it and I feel like with me, that's this thing that I've kind of stolen from what I love about Andy Kaufman's work, which is that it's funny plus something else. He was mm-hmm. funny plus he'd often make his audiences very furious or very bored or very confused. And it, it always always had this layer of it's really funny, but then also the predominant thing isn't even that it's funny sometimes. Like when he was uh, right. Tony Clifton... Right, that wasn't always a laugh a minute. I think the predominant tone in that room, yeah. especially before people totally understood it was him, was actual anger. It was mm-hmm. actual anger. And then when you realize that that's the guy from Taxi in there, becomes <laughs> supremely funny. And, uh, you know, my work, I think, is known for being very open and honest. So sometimes people get confused and they're like, Kaufman, his whole thing was that he, you never knew who he really was. And your whole thing is you wear your heart on your sleeve. But. <laughs> You look at my work. That's an interesting point. Yeah, it is. But I'm still stealing from him because <laughs> my HBO special, I think, was funny and quite sad and intense to some people. And my TV yeah. show was funny, but also kind of reckless and, and chaotic. And and my podcast, I think, is very often funny, but will veer, veer towards the serious mm-hmm. and and uh, contemplative and try not to apologize for that. And just always want to... Put a little layer on it that keeps people a little disarmed, a little bit like they don't know what to expect. Yeah, you seem to always want to be challenging yourself and getting out of your comfort zone. And a great example of that, which impresses me, is that you go out of your way to perform at a very diverse range of comedy clubs. I think what do you get to. out of that? I think you have to. I, I mean, I think to me, you know, this is going to sound very cheesy, but it's something I really believe is that as a comedian, it's such a beautiful job because your job at the end of the day is effectively to make people feel good or to make, you know, to make people laugh or to make people maybe think about something that's uncomfortable to think about. But due to the laughter, you can get them to swallow it. And if that is the case, I feel like to I, my personal opinion, other people might not agree with this. Um, I feel like one of the goals and almost one of the duties of being a high-level comedian is that it's universal, mm-hmm. that someone who is, um, you know, like a, a coastal, progressive, uh, very woke 20-year-old who's living in Bushwick, Brooklyn, will see the value in your joke, and also a middle-aged couple who come to see you in the in a club in a mall in St. Louis can hear the same joke and get something out of it. So... To me, I want to perform everywhere. I I actually don't put material out into the world until I have tested it in front of all kinds of audiences. Being a New Yorker is very nice because I can do shows every single night and yeah. within a week or so I can go do a show in this club that's all Jersey and Long Island people and this club that's all 
you know, uh, you know, super obsessive comedy fans, and I couldn't go out to Brooklyn and do it in front of the artists, and I couldn't go down to South Brooklyn where everybody subscribes to the New Yorker, and then I take my stuff out to clubs on the road. I go to cities that don't have any sort of hipster neighborhood to make sure I'm not just doing stuff that plays in Brooklyn. I go to colleges. A, a lot of comedians right now say that uh, colleges, they they won't do colleges because colleges are too PC, and I actually feel like that underestimates young people severely. I feel like Really? Well, because I, so? I think anytime you look through hi history, young people were generally correct, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's too many phases of history where there's been a movement driven by college age people where you look back and go, they were <laughs> right, right? Like nobody's looking yeah. back and going, man, they were really wrong about wanting to end the Vietnam War. <laughs> they were really wrong yeah. about getting behind the civil rights movement. So to me, I think people who brush, brush aside young people, it, it's very dismissive and very mm -hmm. reductive. And Right, not, but it's not the actual students; it's the administrations that seem to want to censor. And sometimes, but I, I feel like that's driven by the sensitivity of of modern students mm -hmm. who feel a real duty to be inclusive and PC. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I'm not throwing shade right. at other comedians who don't want to deal with it, but to me, I take it as a real challenge. Can mm -hmm. I go into that environment and not apologize for a risky joke or even alter a risky joke that much? Yeah. But find a way to. Make sure people understand the intentions behind why I'm saying this thing are, are good, even if the thing mm. I'm saying is not always good. Comedians don't always say pleasant things. Can I go into an environment and say some unpleasant things, knowing that the reputation of this place is that sometimes you get the pinned to the wall for doing that? That's a, a supreme challenge to me, and I want to I want to take it on. And all yeah. size crowds, too. I want to perform it in front of a room with five people. I want to perform it in front of a room with a thousand people. I want to just know how it plays in every single environment. Yeah. Is the college circuit still big for comics? Because I feel like I don't hear much about it like I used to maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Well, it's a, it's an, a really interesting thing for someone at my exact level because, you know, the, the top tier of comedians that I think used to go in and have these rock star shows in colleges, they are the ones who don't really want to deal with them anymore. Huh, it's very nice really? for someone like me because I think that then puts me in a sphere where the gigs are, there's a few more gigs open for someone who's had a uh, failed low-level cable show. Like that <laughs> seems like a little bit more of a get than it did five years ago. Um, colleges, I think, are still a place where comedians can go. And if, if you get a handful of college gigs a semester, you can actually probably pay your rent for mm -hmm. that four or five or six months if you're smart with your money. And uh, I think they are still a big deal in uh yeah, like I said, a lot of people are wary or roll their eyes with them, but it's it's one of the things where I pretty vehemently disagree. Maybe it's also maybe I think there's probably something you said for when you go to a college town, a lot of comics are probably playing the theater in that town, mm -hmm. and uh, there's venues that will embrace comedy um, beyond colleges now, mm -hmm. and and I, so I think it it probably is a a little bit less of a seminal thing in someone's career, but it's certainly for. Uh, you know, a a, a a a comedian who's pounding the pavement and paying the rent. It's a very big deal. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. And, and we do seem to be in the middle of another comedy renaissance. What do you attribute that to? Netflix? Podcasts? What's driving it now? Podcasts, I think, is the huge mm -hmm. one. I yeah. think that that was a, a, a massive shift that comedians embraced early. And it's something that is very DIY. And it's something that the artist gets to have control over, sink or swim. Yeah, yeah which and you're all about. Absolutely. And I think a lot of comedians were able to put their voice out there in a way that there was no medium to really support. You know, you couldn't you couldn't go listen to someone talk for an hour or two uninterrupted and have them totally in control of it. I think podcast was was the big one. I, I also think there's there's a thing I feel like, which is that uh and, and people have said this before, this is not my original thought, but for a, a certain wave of young people comedy almost became a little bit of what music was like for me and my generation and the generation huh. older than me of, you know i think for example like when i was in when i was in high school and college if you listen to jawbreaker mm -hmm. that was a punk band where people go okay you're kind of an emo kid or for me it was the smiths <laughs> you know i was obsessed yeah. with the smiths and that kind of tells you a little bit about okay. who i am it was an I identifier think. exactly yeah. exactly and that's kind of how you find your tribe and i think there's something to be said now for young people in a beautiful way or like yeah i know who reggie watts is or i yeah I, john mulaney is my guy and uh you know, I'm Maria. If you like Maria Bamford, that certainly says a little bit. I think about where your heart's at and your head's at. Or Tig 
Natara. Yeah. I think there's some examples. Yeah, that's true. People where that's my thing. And when you say that, it, yeah. it, I know a little bit more about you. And I think that's part of the boom. But well, what, is it, what does it say if you like Carrot Top? I mean, I'm sure there's many layers to that. <laughs> yeah. Just the just the just the the years you're reaching back on that one are <laughs> profound. But I think a lot of us are worried that this this bubble is going to burst sometimes. Oh, really? Soon. Yeah. I mean, oh. comics are very anxious, neurotic people. Yeah. But you know, Netflix is supporting comedy, and it's beautiful. They're also putting out a special every single week. It's yeah, only it, sustainable. For, people can only consume yeah. so much comedy, and um. I'm huh. so happy that we're all benefiting from it, but I also hope that it lasts. Yeah, yeah. I guess we could meet, could reach peak comedy at some point along yeah. the way. How many podcasts can you listen to a week? How oh, many yeah, specials can you watch a week? Mm-hmm. Like it's yeah, it is a it, it will hit a saturation point, and you must have some interesting experiences. What's the worst stand up gig you've ever had? I mean, there's been so many bad ones. There have been so many bad ones. I I write about one in the book which is probably the one to talk about because there's a reason I wrote about it. I was, uh, I got a, a comedy central half hour special, which in, in the world of standup, I think is like a real a moment of you are, you are officially like on a, on a pro level. Yeah. You're it's sort of a signifier that you've reached a certain point to other comics. And, uh, there's a, a bar in New York that runs a show called Hot Soup on Tuesday nights. Great show. And, uh, the booker invited me to come run my full half hour at the end of the show. And, I was excited about that. You get a full half hour stage time in New York. That's rare. And uh, in a bar, no less, where, you know, that attention span is not necessarily half hour length. And I went to do it, and there was this guy there who, you know, it was partial seating, partial standing, and it was in a bar, and he had ordered food. And he was, I'll never forget, he was eating French onion soup, and he was standing, <laughs> just like twirling show. the cheese and slurping it. And he was only five or six feet away from the stage. And, <laughs> kind of mumbling stuff through the whole night and I was going last and it's a little bit of a code of honor with comedians where it's like well if I'm the headliner and this guy's been messing with everybody I gotta I gotta take his head off yeah. a little bit and um I was telling a story and, and some of my stories are long and pardon my French you may have to I don't I don't know what That's your policy right. is on some of this by that no, go for it during my story he was eating this French onion soup and slurping it loudly and like <laughs> chewing on this cheese with his mouth open and he just kept saying out loud Bust a nut. Bust a <laughs> nut. And the story I was telling like involved. Why? <laughs> well, the story I was telling did involve a sexual experience, but it was still yeah. so out of left field. Like, bust a nut. And I, I wound up calling him out, and I was like, what's your problem? And we got into it, and at one point he says to me, I was like, why do you think you have a right to do this? He goes, well, I'm a comedian too. And I was like, that's, there's, if that's true, there's a level of hell he just reserved set himself for up. you. Yeah, so then, you know, I write about this in, in a chapter of my book about how you got to learn the rules really well, and then you got to be willing to break them. And mm. and w- the rule I broke that night was I enabled the heckler. I actually said to him, you know, it became like a game of chess, and we were going back and forth. And I said to him, you know, do you think you're funnier than me? And he said, yeah. And I said, great, here's the mic. Come up and do your act. <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, look, it's a packed-out room. Every comedian should want to perform in front of a packed-out room. And if you're better than I am, this crowd will get a better show. They won't be mad. And I'll sit back and I'll learn something. And I won't be mad, but I warn you, if you're not as funny as I am, this crowd's going to eat you alive based on how you've been behaving tonight. And he knew he either walks away a coward who gets booed or he yeah. gets up and does it. And he got up and, and he choked really hard. <laughs> really? And uh, Yeah. And he, what was his material? It was just this mumbly setup <laughs> that he, he immediately, because, you know, the crowd, the crowd did not appreciate his behavior. And I asked mm-hmm. them, I said, give him an honest chance. I'm giving him the mic and I want you to give him an honest chance. And he got about six words in and you just saw him do the, like, uh, the, 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 customary like blink and brow furrow that signifies he has forgotten his first joke <laughs> and right in that window you started to hear the first uh boos and heckles and didn't go well and he uh he fled he actually ran out of the room <laughs> you're kidding he actually sprinted out it was crazy someone threatened to fight him and <laughs> on the way out it was, it was really intense that's probably the worst show i've had but i want to yeah. reiterate i've had thousands of bad shows yeah i really have was the club owner pissed at you? No, luckily it was a bar show, so they're, oh, okay, they're right, just happy right, right. to sell food and drinks. Yeah. You know, it was the end of the <laughs> night. They are they were just settling up tabs. Yeah, they were probably happy they got to go home a little earlier. 
We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Chris Gethard when we come back in just a minute. Almost every day, we hear something on the news about a cyber attack. Sometimes it's just a bunch of pranksters, but more often it's a foreign country with vast cyber resources trying to hack our power grid, our banking system, or our military's information networks. The National Security Agency plays a big part in protecting our country from cyber attacks, and you can help. The NSA is hiring technical professionals to serve on the front lines of information security. If you work in computer science, networking, programming, or electrical engineering, you can help keep your country safe. Design new hardware systems and networks, write faster, smarter programs, protect America's critical infrastructure, or help uncover what our adversaries are planning to do next. Learn more about careers at the National Security Agency today. Visit intelligencecareers.gov NSA. That's intelligencecareers.gov slash NSA. Folks, I was really dragging this morning, and I didn't have time to wait in line for a coffee before I came into the studio. So I'll tell you what I did. I grabbed an espresso monster. That's right. The guys from Monster Energy Drinks now have a delicious, creamy espresso drink in two different flavors. I tried the vanilla espresso today, and it gave me just the shot in the arm that I needed to power through my day. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of smooth espresso and cream packaged in an 8.4-ounce can, so it's just the right size and perfect for when you're on the go. Each can has three shots of espresso, that's right, three shots, blended with European milk just the way the Italians do it. And at 150 to 160 milligrams of caffeine per can, it's sure to give you the energy you need to conquer the day. Espresso Monster has two delicious flavors to choose from, espresso and cream and vanilla espresso. Produced in Denmark and the Netherlands, Espresso Monster is made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend that's complete with taurine and B vitamins. Espresso Monster certainly got me going this morning, and it tastes so good, I'd drink it anyway. You gotta give it a try, folks. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. And now, back to the podcast. For so many comics, you know, the ultimate goal is to land a sitcom deal and get out of stand-up. You got that dream, but you say that it took getting canceled for you to realize that it was never really what you wanted in the first place. Yeah. Now, is that just sour grapes? I'm sure there's some elements of having to yeah. rationalize, right? Yeah. Of course, yeah. but... The reason I say that is because I so distinctly remember I'd been working a decade to get a shot like that. And when it failed, it didn't hurt that bad. It was it was not pleasant. It was not easy to read some of those reviews. But I remember just feeling internally, and I'm, I'm very prone to depression and anxiety, and it didn't push those buttons. And I couldn't figure out why. And I took a step back and I said, I don't watch sitcoms. I don't watch them. Why did I, yeah. why is it, why am I defining myself by the fact that I got one? That's ego. That's me looking at my friends who came out of the UCB theater and have these hot shot jobs and me going, why don't I have one? What does it say about me that I can't nail one? That is ego and pettiness and, and a lot of, a lot of things that I actually didn't like about myself. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized, oh, I got caught up in this game. Um, but it's like. Would I be would I be mad at myself if somebody handed me a trumpet and said go play the blue, go play in a jazz club? No, it's not a thing I go and experience right. and watch. Why do I think I have a right to go do it? And it's kind of the same things with sitcoms. And I think there's good ones in the world, and there's millions of people who enjoy them. And more power to you. It's it's I'm not throwing shade. It's just not my thing. It's not my preferred yeah. thing. And I realized this is all ego. How mm. gross is that? That's not how I grew up. Yeah, and you don't have to take everything that gets handed to you, even if it is something that's considered really special and something to aspire to by everyone yeah. else. And I, I had this, not your bag. I had this true moment of reckoning yeah. where I was like, oh, they took away this thing from me that I'm now realizing I didn't necessarily need. I wanted it, but I didn't need this. Yeah. So why am I really an artist? Why am I really a comedian? What's the thing that I need to get out there? And I, I really readjusted my thinking and started focusing on, on trying to put those things into the world. And as you can imagine, I had a real fire in my gut to do so. Mm -hmm. I also, on a petty level, just said to myself, 
if I'm ever going to get crushed in reviews again, it's at least going to be for something that I really stand by and fight for and that feels like mine. Uh, yeah, and that became the Chris Gethard Show, yeah. which ran on uh, cable access for I don't know how long Four and years. then got picked up for cable TV for a while. Um, for anyone who may not have seen it, just give a few examples of the kind of things that you would do on the Chris Gethard Show. It was really wild. It was really, really wild. Um, I think the episode people love the most is that we did a broadcast where we just had a dumpster sitting on set and Jason Mandukas <laughs> and Paul Shear, two very funny guys, were the oh, guests. Yeah. And the whole thing was, you got to call up and guess what's in this dumpster. And uh, <laughs> Was it trash? And I, Not I, to spoil anything. No, I, I, I don't want to spoil it. I want to encourage people to watch it. It's, it's People okay. have actually written, like critics, uh, there are critics who have said it's one of the best hours of television they've ever seen. And it's a show <laughs> nobody's ever heard of. And we did a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, back in the public access days, we, we uh, what are some of the standout ones? We did one that people really genuinely love. And I say this... Uh, not facetiously, where four of us wore a four four male cast members wore a big skirt, and all of us had our pants and underwear off, and you could <laughs> a, call up and ask us to uh, describe each other's genitalia, and it was really wild. But it actually became this like pretty yeah. cool thing where it was like, let's just be comfortable with male vulnerability and nudity mm -hmm. and 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 body image and it actually i think took on this tone of like oh this is a weirdly positive thing so you know it makes me wonder though uh, what happened to cable access is is that still a thing or people is, is is everyone on youtube now i think is that I'm, where cable access is gone it's really I'm, i love that you brought it up I, I think youtube has grabbed a lot of young people a lot of creative people public access though i tell you when i first uh signed up friend of mine who worked at the studio telling me about it and I was I was very very wary but I, I thank God that I went there it's it's mm -hmm. one of the most beautiful bastions of the first amendment that you'll ever experience they yeah. let people on who do, can do anything and uh you know there's a lot of like yoga and <laughs> chamber orchestras but there's yeah. also a lot of things that's like hey here's you know in in Manhattan it's like hey here's a, a neighborhood that's uh you know maybe you know east harlem here here's a show run by dominican american residents talking about you know the political issues just within their own community board mm -hmm. and and who are we going to vote for who's going to represent like like a lot of stuff like yeah. that that's grassroots ability to let people get voices out there and i also will not lie there is a high percentage of crazy people on public yeah. access and i say that with a lot of love for crazy people but man oh man Real cast of characters <laughs> in those studios. It, yeah, it almost reminds me of where podcasting is in that it's a medium that rewards passion, even if it's for something that's so niche. Oh, yeah. If you're passionate about it, one way or another, you'll find an audience. Yeah, and a, a lot of the people who worked there did not like me. They regarded really? me Why? as a, a Hollywood interloper. <laughs> oh, because and you came from I had a cable, I had a from cable show. And, uh, or from cable television. They used to put me on these yeah. email lists where they would come in and it would be dozens and dozens of people who had shows. And this crew of about a half dozen people would send out these emails. Chris Gethard is ruining this station. And, his, uh, and they would literally say things like, there was one where they CC'd my agents where they found out, Oh, his, we've put his agents from the Gersh agency on it. And I was like, I left Gersh two years ago. Like, this is so weird. And they'd tear me to shreds. And and then I would rent, reply all and say, hey, before anybody gets in on this uh, public bashing, I'm on this email list and I'm just trying to work hard and make a good show. And I know it's getting a lot of attention and I hope that helps all of us get attention. And I have no yeah. bad intentions. And one of them actually wound up suing me in federal court. For what? It was bonkers. He... Um, in 2012, I was asked to cover the presidential election for the public access <laughs> network. And, uh, I said to them, maybe a fun stunt to get some eyes on it. What's the longest continuous broadcast in New York public access history. And we realized if we did a 12 hour broadcast, we would break it. And in the course of that, a number of people had shows scheduled for that day and uh, were told, okay. oh, there's a special event. And yeah. this guy's show was one of the ones that got canceled and he... Uh, sued me, Time Warner Cable, the Manhattan Neighborhood Network, and a number of people who worked there were all named individually in this lawsuit that he filed saying that 
I stomped out his uh, First Amendment rights. Oh, I was like, dude, wow. he just got rescheduled. He for framed the next it as day. the First Amendment like, issue, huh? And he continuously <laughs> said that. He continuously referred to me as white comedian Rick Gethard. <laughs> My name is Chris Gethard. I'll also note that he is also a Caucasian man. Um, it was really, it was really wild. And he, uh, one of the things he wanted was at the time I was on a cable network called Fusion. Our show had had moved on from public access. Right. He demanded that he be allowed to host an episode of my show on a what? cable network, which is not, <laughs> you can't force another private company. By federal decree, you have to let this guy you don't know on your airwaves. It was hey, equal time. wild. It was <laughs> that wild. Is bizarre. Yeah. And I was actually, I was doing my one man show off Broadway and uh, one night a, a lady, really intense lady, just kind of burst into my green room backstage and asked me to sign a thing for her and I was uh, some friends were there visiting me after the show and I was really scared so I just signed it just in an effort to get her to leave and then she said I got you this present and it was this thing wrapped up and when I opened it that's how I had been served papers oh you're kidding when I signed the poster (laughs) that counted as me uh, signing it as as an acknowledgement that I had received my papers that is sneaky I I was ambushed (laughs) it was like dude just uh just email me and I'll meet you at a Starbucks or something. Yeah. Like, no need for the subterfuge. Yeah, what happened to a rising tide lifts all ships? Look, yeah. if you have a popular show on cable access, that helps all the shows. I thought so. And I, I, I can say, too, it's it's fun to tell these stories. But, you know, 90% of the people there, I think, looked at what me and my friends were doing and said, oh, these these people are really hardworking. They're taking this medium. They're, they're merging it with the comedy they're doing kind of in Brooklyn and, and downtown mm-hmm. and, and – uh, that's cool. That's cool. A lot of people felt that way. The large majority were like, this is cool. And uh, mm-hmm. we were friends with a lot of them. And then there was there was just this crew that really... So I want, one lady sent a, in one of these emails said, you know, your show has no cultural value. It has no place on our station. Uh, you're mocking the rest of us by your presence here. And I got really upset. And then I looked up her show she had said my show had no cultural value. And one of the first videos I found, I'm not exaggerating, it was her interviewing a, a an admitted sex offender huh. about how he has been visited by angels and can travel between <laughs> dimensions. So in a, in a way that was right on the edge of, of, of condescending, I, I just wrote, I sent out a thing to everyone. Because again, they put dozens of people on this and I, was, I felt like I was being publicly shamed. And I said... I understand you think my show has no cultural value. I think comedy is a big part of New York City culture and agree to disagree. And I'm not going to come down on your show or judge its value. Mm -hmm. For example, this video is not for me and maybe it has value to other people. And I I linked the the interdimensional traveling (laughs) molester. Let everybody just kind of decide for themselves (laughs) whose show had... What level of cultural value? <laughs> now, the Chris Gethard show had a run on Fusion and then on True TV uh, before it ended this, actually, I think a few months ago. August, yeah. Is there any part of you that might want to go back to doing cable access or maybe YouTube? It's really funny. I've thought about it. One of the beautiful things about cable access is that it's totally non-commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike a podcast where you can go and get advertisers yeah. and 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 pay your rent. You can't do that. And um, I don't mind putting out work that I believe in for no money. If there's a way that I can maybe get money for it, I don't think there's yeah, anything wrong with that. Yeah, if it's marketing your brand and Absolutely. making people and aware of shows and stuff. I yeah. think I have worked that's hard true. to get to a level where that's a, a possibility. And I'll also say this. As our show was in the pressure cooker of potential cancellation, it was very, very difficult and one of the things that made me fight really hard for its survival, because I would have been happy to walk away from the pressure after a certain point, but you also look around and go, oh, there's about 70 people who have full-time jobs, and then a bunch more who come yeah. in on our shoot days, and it's this little micro-economy, and a lot of those people who had jobs were not just people who showed up and worked on the public access show, who just volunteered for free for four years. Some of them were fans of the show. There was a guy who moved from Honolulu to work on our show, a guy who moved from wow. San Francisco to be a PA, our social media coordinator was a girl who lived in Florida who used to just post stuff about the show on Tumblr and helped rally this fan base. And we reached out and said, you've always had your finger on the pulse. Will you come, you know, come That's accept so cool. a job? And I would see that and, 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 and I was fiercely proud of that. So that's one of the things about cable access. It's not a artistic 
thing I would avoid. But there's a certain level of pride in realizing, oh, it was really a community that built it. And I was so happy that a lot of people who got their first jobs on the production side of TV or the creative side of TV, who were people who got in the trenches for this thing with my name on it. It's, it's one of the hugest honors of my life. Yeah. And now you've kind of channeled that into something new. You have this incredibly unique podcast called beautiful stories for anonymous people. And yet it's such a simple premise, I guess (laughs) you get listeners to call in and talk about their lives for an hour, not celebrities It's not a celebrity talk show. These are just regular people from wherever calling in anonymously to talk about themselves. It could be anything from the other day you had someone who was a a nanny or or worked in a daycare and she was calling you while the kids were taking their nap. Or before that, you had someone who survived a mass shooting. And what's interesting is you treat everyone with the same respect and the same amount of interest, no matter what their story is. I feel like my job with that show is to is to be a platform for them. Let the show be a platform for them. And as far as my individual role within that platform, you know, help them feel comfortable and and try to ask the right questions and try to help point them in the direction that I think will be interesting to a listener without them having to sweat that out. And it's been a very cool life-changing project. I I thought it was going to be a little bit more like the Chris Gethard show. I figured it would be like college kids calling in and messing with me a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. It just became this thing that was very, very genuine. And I realized there's a lot of people in this world, in this era who feel unlistened to yeah and the show at the end of the day is just one guy will listen to you and then Mm -hmm. a whole community of people that like the show will listen to you and i feel really proud of it and it's 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 doing it's doing well and still a little under the radar which is kind of my whole career (laughs) and uh i'm I'm really proud of it and I, i feel like you know not to pat myself on the back too hard but i'm like oh you can listen to this show in the future and know what people were worried about in 2016, yeah. 17, 18. And I'm really proud of that. In like, a, yeah. you know, when I watch Ken Burns documentaries and you see like someone will just read a letter that a Civil War soldier sent home and you're like, that's that, that guy in his own mm-hmm. words. And I like knowing that I built something where people can get on record who they yeah. are in their own words. Yeah, it almost makes me think of like Studs Terkel and yes, how he chronicled yes. the great the the ordinary lives of the Great Depression and all these different voices and experiences. Absolutely, I've thought about that a lot. It's a, it's interesting because a, a lot like like you said, I agree with you. you when you start a time, and you say such a simple premise, and there are people who have told me like, oh, this is like such a such a crazy I, there's people who have said like this is a revolutionary idea i'm like i think that's a it's reflective of the sad state of the mm-hmm. modern world if just listening to someone for an hour feels revolutionary yeah. and you know we live in a social media yeah. 140 characters at a time yeah brand yourself uh society and i don't I, I, it's not the most original idea there's people who have done similar things and uh Listening shouldn't feel like a revolutionary act. Yeah, and Beautiful Anonymous also strikes me as maybe a little bit of an antidote to the divisiveness and the tribalism we're experiencing right now. Just being able to have a real conversation with someone you don't know who may have a differing opinion from you. Have you talked to people in the course of doing this show with whom you may have disagreed on politics or big issues, and how does that go? 100%. It's it's such an odd line to walk because I never want to betray what I present to people, which is that if you call me, my job is to be there to help you facilitate the telling of your story. Mm-hmm. That being said, I I also think one of the things people like about the show is that it's it's not a structured interview. It's not a pre-interview. It's, I don't even know what's coming. It's, it's, uh, it's something gets thrown at me and they get to listen to me roll with the punches as well. And I, I cop to the fact that I'm often ignorant about the things that come up and understand I might put my foot in my mouth and, 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 and whatnot. And, uh, there's been a couple people that I've, I've vehemently disagreed with one where across the line and boiled over where I got into a fight and a lot of the fans of the show were mad at me where it was someone who, um, some, someone who was very pro guns, Someone who lived, mm-hmm. I, I think it was Kentucky or Tennessee, or uh, I, I apologize if I have that wrong, but lived in a state where I think guns are something you grow up with a little more often than where I grew up in the yeah. Northeast. And um, she really was 
vehement about that. And the question people wound up getting mad at me for, because I will say on my end, I I have a really big problem with the fact that every time there's a mass shooting, one of the most quickly publicized things is that the person was on antidepressants because I take Mm. antidepressants and I've spoken about it publicly. And I think that behavior demonizes people uh, demonizes that whole issue and makes people mm-hmm. avoid getting help or seeing a shrink or taking yeah. medicine. And yeah. when you start to look it up, in my opinion, it's very insidious. There's press releases go out and then you see the names of the organizations putting them out and you're like, these are NRA like organizations or branches of the NRA. And it's a, right. they quickly try to make it. So this is a crazy person, not a gun issue. And yeah. So I, yeah. I, and uh, in a lot of cases, it's both. Then I've talked <laughs> about that, that on stage. I, I tried to develop a joke about that, but I was clearly too genuinely mad for it to mm-hmm. be funny. But yeah, it's like, yeah, of course it's a mental health issue if you're going to go into a movie theater and think you're the Joker and kill a bunch of people. But let's not pretend a gun wasn't involved. Yeah. Let's not pretend it's it's <laughs> both. And and one of the points I really vehemently believe is it's both. If you're a logical person, you can admit that. And if you want to solve the problem, we still have to yes. focus on the guns because you can't not have crazy people. Mm-hmm. Crazy people have always existed. There's always been people with mental health issues. You can go back, I'm sure every era of history, back to the prehistoric days, I'm sure there were cavemen who were a little bit off compared to the other cavemen. Yeah. You can't you can't not have crazy people. Um, yeah, and, but you you can't strangle fifty people exactly, <laughs> you know, all exactly at once exactly. And uh, this lady and I started getting into it, and I I asked her a question that people didn't love. It's probably the moment that was most divisive as far as something I had said in the show. Where I said to her, you know, when when a school shooting happens and a, a bunch of kids die, don't you feel a little more responsible than I do? Mm. And a lot of people thought that question was very condescending and aggressive and. She and I, it immediately, it was like storm clouds rolled in and you could hear it on the podcast. And she said, no, I don't. And she said, do you think I am? And I said, honestly, you're fighting for guns to be in the world and I'm not. And I do. And it was uh, a moment where my personal opinions really bubbled up in a way that uh, got people mad. Yeah, I don't know uh, if that, uh, I, I don't know if that was the outrage machine. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad yeah. thing. And on the other hand, there was an episode in in the summer of 2016, where a lady called in. She told me that she was voting for Donald Trump, and I, I I was clearly at a point where in my life as a liberal northeasterner, I was not voting for Donald Trump, and uh, I think I did a good job of biting my tongue on that one, <laughs> letting her air out some stuff, asking her some questions, and saying, "Do you really agree with this thing he's doing?" As a woman, when you hear him say he's going to grab people by the pussy, and she would say, no, I don't agree with that. Of course not, but there's just something I like about him. And, and it, mm. was, it was one of the moments where I said, oh, no, people don't. I think I just realized that he might win, and I don't think other people yeah. are, are realizing yeah. that yet. And One of the really fascinating things, though, was I, I, I managed to bite my tongue and not turn that one into a fight. And she actually, throughout the course of the episode, revealed that she was someone who had suffered some abuse and had been through a lot of pain oh, wow. and started to realize, huh. oh, this, again, people are lonely. People mm-hmm. are in pain. People don't feel taken care of. This is, this is, people are voting for this guy because of some deeper wounds. Mm-hmm. And I was happy that I bit my tongue and got there. And, and maybe on the gun one, I would have gotten to something that thoughtful or genuine if I had been able to, uh, keep my emotions in check. I don't know. <laughs> well, I want to end on a slightly lighter note here. Um, before we go, tell us about the worst scumbag you ever met. Who is oh. Dusty Bunter? Is that right? That is an alias. Obviously, oh, with the okay. things I, I kind s- of figured. Yeah, it had to you, be I can't say like the that. things I said about that guy in this book without. Real fear. name is Michael Ovitz. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, he was a manager. He was a manager who uh, saw me perform comedy in New York when I was twenty years old. And I got a phone call from him out of the blue. I'm still not sure how he got my number. And he he said he wanted to represent me, and I was so excited. And I really break down in the book how he was a a classical sort of like entertainment industry predator. There's there are people who uh who kind of uh flit around the edges of this world. And there's a lot of industries <laughs> yeah. like this, right? He who, didn't get you on the casting couch, did he? No, but there's <laughs> you know he 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 definitely comes from that. 
corner of the world. I don't know okay. that he's, I'm not saying he's ever done that, but I'm saying <laughs> this idea that there's these shady people who are sort of like manipulators who want to, uh, want to sort of latch onto you. And he, he sent me on a series of weird auditions and I write in the book about how it's so shady. I used to have to sign in under all these weird fake company names. It was different every time. And, uh, he sent me on on one that was uh, I was twenty years old, and he said they were looking for someone who could play young. And I went in, and there was a part for a uh, seven year old boy. <laughs> he sent me on a uh, hand modeling audition. Did not tell me it was hand modeling. Told me it was a Doritos commercial. And I have a uh, skeletal condition where my uh, I don't have top knuckles. Like I I would not have taken the day off of work yeah. and traveled in from New Jersey for that. And, uh, it, it, the the he really was. It's a chapter I think a yeah. lot of people might enjoy. I don't yeah. want to spoil too many more no. things about it, yeah. but uh, man, I. Do you know where he is now? I I Google him every now and then, and and he comes up a lot with you know these these sites that we see all the time where it's like, hey, pay us four hundred fifty dollars. Oh yeah, and headshots, then you, and, and then the, you get to meet yeah. you get to meet uh, agents and managers. Like, oh, okay, he's you see his name come up on those things where it's like yeah. well, aspiring people with dreams being. Or yeah, hundreds of dollars just to meet people who can help them, and <laughs> somehow those people never go away. They always seem there. to figure out a way to make a buck. Sort of pyramid yeah. schemes, and you got to watch your back. Well, the book is just terrific. It's funny. It's got some great suggestions for anyone who wants to go into entertainment or anyone who wants to pursue anything that they're passionate about. Again, it's called Lose Well, Chris Gethard. Thanks so much for talking with me. It was this fun. Was such a good time. Thank you for. Letting me sully your show. (laughs) Thanks again to Chris Gethard for coming on the podcast. Order his book, Lose Well, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Subscribe to his podcast, Beautiful Stories from Anonymous People, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And follow Chris on Twitter at at Chris Gethard. Folks, I was just telling you earlier how I got my day started with an espresso monster today. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso or espresso and cream flavors. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.